Hi, I'm Lindsay Pugh. And I'm Joe Nesterook. Welcome to Woman in Revolt podcast. Today we're talking about two versions of Black Christmas, the 1974 original film directed by Bob Clark and the 2019 remake directed by Sophia Tikal. There is also a 2006 remake directed by Glenn Morgan, but I haven't seen it, and Joe, you haven't seen it either, right? No, it. I blew it off. I didn't watch it. I didn't either, and maybe I will eventually, but it's one of those movies that doesn't sound very good. It sounds like it's kind of just a standard remake and maybe a little bit gorier. I, pr- I can't imagine I would like it, but uh, yeah, I don't. We're not going to talk about it in this podcast. No, no. And I'll, I'll probably watch it one day, too, just out of curiosity, but... Nope. Yeah. So it's... I know we've been we've been away for kind of a while, but yeah. it's almost Christmas when we're recording this. This will come out before Christmas, so happy, happy holidays. Yes, yes. And even though I'm very liberal, I'm going to say Merry Christmas. Yeah. Uh, and happy holidays to everyone. And however you celebrate, I wish you all the best and all the best in the coming year. Yes. Yeah. And so we thought, I mean, I personally, I went on a holiday movie spree because I was trying to update my holiday watch list. I'll link that in the show notes so that you can check it out on womaninrevolt.com. But I watched a bunch of movies for that. And a lot of what I watched were like, old movies from the 1940s and the 1950s and a lot of like Christmas rom-coms and just a ton of happy Christmas shit. And I am now at the point where I'm like, okay, I'm I'm done with this. I want to watch people kill each other. Well, then we're talking about the right movie. Yes. And I just have to say, check out Lindsay's list. There's a part one that she did a couple of years ago. She just updated the part two. The movies on there are phenomenal. She introduced me to so many movies that I did not associate as traditional Christmas movies. And you are going to be so glad when you check them out. They are such good recommendations. So don't delay. Do it. Yeah, and it's definitely not. I don't think there are any Christmas horror movies on that list. But if you are uh, if you are in the mood to watch Christmas horror, I will say that there is a book by Kayla Janice, the same woman who did House of Psychotic Women, called, I think it's called Yuletide Terror. And it's a bunch of essays, not all written by her, written by other people, but it focuses on Christmas horror, holiday horror. So I think if you're looking for that type of thing, that book probably has so many good recommendations in it. Unfortunately, I think it's hard to get a copy. I don't have one. I've been trying to get one for a while, but something to keep an eye out for, or even just look at the index and pull some movies out of there. There might be some you haven't seen. Nice. Definitely will check that out. I love her. I do too. And even though we have, I think, pretty different tastes in movies, I'm always interested in her recommendations. And I just like hearing her or reading her uh, thoughts on movies. She's very smart. Yes. So... In terms of Black Christmas, Joe, when did you first see this movie? And I know you would have been like a kid when it came out, but do you remember it being a thing at all? You know, I really thought back, I think I would have been like 10 or 11 when it came out. 
And no, I do not remember this coming out. I was in a very evangelical home. I think that summer of 1974, like my family, our vacation, we went to a Pentecostal uh, church camp for a week. (laughs) So this 10 or 11-year-old would not have seen an R-rated movie called Black Christmas where they were saying calling women cunts. (laughs) I would have never seen it. When did you first see it? Honestly, if I've seen it over the years, I didn't remember it. Maybe I have seen certain parts because my first recollection of watching it was just a couple of years ago when when they came out with the supposedly remake. And I, be, I don't know if you and I watched it together or maybe we mm-hmm. were just talking about it and I watched it on my own. And some of the scenes seem familiar. So maybe I've like caught it on cable in my 20s or 30s, but it didn't really stick with me. So it really has just been a recent watch for me, which is sad. I wish I had seen it a lot sooner. I wish I could have seen it when I was young, but I I didn't get to. I mean, same for me. I saw it maybe, maybe five years ago or something like that when I was in New York for work and it played at Nighthawk in Brooklyn and I went to see it. But that was the first time I'd seen it. And that was also kind of the first time I'd heard about it. I don't know why, but it just really was not on my radar. And I think I want to say it was kind of hard to find until Shout Factory put out uh, maybe maybe a Blu-ray or an HD DVD on it in like 2016 or 2017 Mm -hmm. or something like that. And then I think maybe like Criterion got it or something. And I don't know. I had a hard time. I was trying to figure out like, okay, because when this movie first came out, it was panned, pretty widely panned by critics. But it definitely has become a cult classic. And now it is, I think, a very beloved holiday movie, holiday horror movie, definitely a point of pride for Canadians. But I don't really know when that all happened or how it happened, like how it gained steam. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sadly completely in the dark on its its life and how eventually and thankfully it became more appreciated. But after seeing it two or three times now, I've watched it. I believe that it really was a groundbreaking film. And I believe that it was really a genius of a film on how everything was presented. More, more so than even just a horror film. Like, there, there, there was a lot of horrors yeah. going on here more than just people getting impaled and killed. So, Yeah. Well, we were talking about this before we started recording, but even just the fact that this film came out in 1974 and abortion, there's a character who's talking openly about abortion and who plans to get an abortion. Just having that in a film is really radical, especially because... This was written by a Canadian, and it was shot in Canada. And I believe at the time, and I just found this out from a Google, a quick Google, so if I'm wrong, please correct me, but it seems like abortion was still illegal in Canada at the time, that it was not fully legalized until like the late 80s. So to me, that seemed like that would be massively radical. And it made me wonder what the film's reception was like in Canada when it was released there. 
So I think that would be some interesting stuff to read about to dig into a little bit more. Absolutely. That was radical that this woman did not want to be a mother at that point in her life. Maybe never. Who knows? She wanted her career. She wanted more out of life. (gasps) You know, suck in your breath. Oh, my God. That she didn't want to marry her hot composer boyfriend. And we'll talk about him later. Yeah. But I think that that was really a huge statement to be made. Yeah, for sure. And she didn't give any excuses, really. She was kind of just like, yeah, I'm going to be getting my abortion and uh, you can go fuck yourself, Peter. I mean, she didn't say that. She was a little more composed and a little more, I don't want to say introverted, but kept her feelings a little... Uh, close to the what's the expression like close to the chest close to the vest she wasn't like divulging much emotionally I think because well I hate to get in this now but Peter was just such a man baby and so volatile I think she was doing it out of trying to keep him calm I think she had learned that over their relationship like he's gonna freak his ass out and get crazy I've got to be calm it's almost like she was having to treat him as a child she probably had been dating a child for these past three or four years she was with him. And she was like, I sure as fuck don't want to have this guy's baby. I've already got a baby. Yeah. That was my impression. Like, I've been where she is. You know, you you have to remain calm so he doesn't freak out and, like, send you spiraling across the room or something, which could happen, unfortunately, a lot of times. And we all saw there's that scene where he destroys his baby grand piano in the conservatory so it's like this dude he's a he's a loose you know, cannon for fuck's sake people i i have dreams of when i get mad of like smashing shit i want to go to one of those rooms where i can just smash shit but even in the worst of times i'm able to have an argument without busting up something or physically harming people i don't know why men just go the fuck off yeah. all the time it's like just chill out you know i'm gonna tell you calm down you're hysterical yeah (laughs) calm down you're hysterical men yeah yep men are the ones that need to chill the fuck out because anytime anything goes wrong violence is the first impulse often and uh yeah it's pretty fucked up yeah so well anyway yeah we may have gotten a little ahead of ourselves but peter (laughs) peter got on my last nerve so yeah we had to go into it just a little bit just had to Well, we're also going to be talking about the 2019 remake, and I'm going to be pretty upfront with you and say I don't I don't love this movie. But the reason why I want to talk about it and the reason why over the years I've told people to watch it is because I do feel like it got a lot of unnecessary hatred online and that the hatred was almost as reductive as the film. And I think that even though the film takes a lot of missteps and is not ultimately that valuable as a piece of standalone cinema or as a remake, I still think it's worth talking about and digging into because it's important to isolate some of the problems and to think about where it went wrong and to think about where it went right because why not? (laughs) Let's have a critical conversation about it. I mean, absolutely. I. I think I liked it a little bit more than you did. I have, as is common for me, kind of gone back and forth on it. I always like to watch something fresh, get my own impression of it. 
And I have a tendency to look for the good in anything. So I'm probably biased in that thing where I'm always trying to pull out the good. So I, I tend to, I think, like movies. And then once I watch them again and maybe read a little bit about them, I become a little more critical. So my first watch of this when it came out was, hey, you know, it's all right. That was fun. Um, I liked it. I liked, you know, seeing the kick-ass scene. That was kind of funny and fun in a weird killing everybody type way. And then going back, I mean, it definitely does have some problems. And I read some critiques of it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do see that. But I mean, overall, I, I have to agree. I I tend to probably like the film a little more than most people. And I do feel like it got a lot of hate that may be unnecessary. And maybe 30, 40 years from now, I'm not saying that it's going to become a cult classic like the original Black Christmas, but I think maybe people may look upon it a little bit kinder, depending on where we are in society at that time. I don't know. I'm putting it out there. I'll be dead by then, but anybody that's still around, you can hold me to it. Yeah, I mean, I think if anything, it's a little bit of a time capsule of like mainstream popular feminism of the time like right around the me too movement and it's it's almost like it's a it's a good example of the way that feminism has been marketed to us over the past few years so i think it's interesting for that reason and we also know like blumhouse is the type of studio known for just pushing out lower budget horror movies and just seeing kind of what sticks i'm not saying there haven't been really good Blumhouse horror movies. There have been like the Jordan Peele movies and Invisible Man wasn't bad and I liked Cam. So there have been good ones, but I think that it's just a studio that is is not really known for creating pieces of beautiful cinema <laughs> and right. instead just kind of shitting things out and seeing what ends up making them money. Absolutely. And when I was reading about this, I did read where this director, who I do not believe had directed a full-length film before, am I correct in that? She had done Always Shine okay. from, I think, 2016. And then she had done a prior horror movie for Blumhouse. And I can't remember. It was, maybe it was called like New Year, New Me or New okay. Year, New You or something. Okay. But she and I think that's, yeah, I think that's how they got her name because she had done a movie for them prior. And I believe the first movie she did for them, it was like the first woman directed movie for Blumhouse. Mm, I gotcha. So she had directed some, but didn't have tons and tons of movies under her belt. They came to her. She had a very strict timeline. I think it was like nine months that they had to shoot it. They provided her with her cast, she could not go through and bring anyone in or have time to. Re I just feel like it was rushed. So, with that said, I'm not trying to make excuses. I'm just trying to set up, you know, sometimes parameters can make or break a film. And I, I, I believe that that hurt what came out. All of those extenuating circumstances did not help what eventually was presented to the public. And I think, too, at the time, there was probably a desire from a marketing standpoint for it to be like a rah-rah pussy hat wearing 
females fight back against the patriarchy. Like some of that dumb shit. That was probably, I don't want to say it was foisted upon her and her co-writer April Wolf, but I think that was like in the zeitgeist and that probably influenced the way that that movie was approached and then in turn the way it was marketed. So I think I'm a little more, um, what do I want to say? Like I'm a little gentler toward it because I can see how you would go into it with good intentions and maybe more nuanced intentions Mm -hmm. and that through rewrites and through the production process, it would just become amped up in all of those areas where the movie becomes a bit cringy in execution, Mm -hmm. let's just say. Right. I agree. I agree. I mean, there was a whole set of things going on. It just hit at some crazy time in our society. Just a lot of of craziness was going on at that point. A lot of stuff was coming into play. We had just had a couple of years of Donald Trump, and that's enough to skew anything. But I do, I, I still have to say that I... I like some of it, and Lindsay, you and I had talked about this, that we feel like the film tried to do too much for everybody, and it to have it be called a remake of the original Black Christmas, I know there was some similarities, but I think that that kind of doomed it from the start, because it definitely is not in that same vein. And we had both said if it had gone a lot more you know, just went campy, just went like something over the top. Maybe that would have even worked better. Yeah, like Bodies, 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 which came out this year, was really campy and fun. And was the premise super original? No, not really. But the acting was funny. The casting was great. And I just liked that movie a lot. And I thought that if Black Christmas had taken more of that approach tonally and cut out some of the more problematic subplots, It could have really been a funny, enjoyable movie that wasn't trying to say anything crazy radical, Mm -hmm. but that just was a good experience, like a pleasurable watch. So I see promise in it. I see promise in it, and I see how it could have been much better. And it's a shame that it didn't go in that direction, but I think that just to call it a piece of trash and not talk about it further does it a disservice. I agree. I agree on all that, especially the fight scene and the supernatural element. I think that would have fit really well into camp to really to bring that up. I Yeah. They played it so seriously and it was like, oh, no, right. this is a mistake. And I will also say before we get into the plot synopsis that I immediately, my immediate first criticism of the remake was that the robed figure just was not very menacing to me. I just, in Black Christmas, the original, the unseen killer is so scary because you just see Mm -hmm. like his shadow or you see a really high angle shot or a low angle Mm -hmm. shot of his feet, but you never see him. He's just such a mystery. And I think that showing this guy in a robe just takes something away from it. It's just not very scary. No, to me, the scariest part of the movie was the opening scene where the girl was walking down the street and the man was following her and she was getting her keys out in her hand. 
I mean, my stomach was turning over because that's relatable scariness to me. And then I thought that it was, to me, that was like one of the best scenes that right there at the beginning when he finally cornered her. And I mean, I was screaming like, just knock on the door, bust through somebody's window, do something. And she opened the door and he was there and the way he killed her and she kind of made the weird snow angel as he pulled her off. That vibe, I was like, okay, I think that that set up a good vibe that kind of went downhill afterwards. So that part, because we didn't really see what was going on, we kind of saw him, but he was here and he was there and he was in the shadows and he was that unseen part that was so scary. And then after that, it kind of went off the rails a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I think the opening scene was really, really good. It was like a very high way to start the movie and then it just slowly crept downhill after that opening scene. But it was pretty scary. And I liked what they did, which was take a very real fear that women have being all alone and having someone follow you and not know what to do. And then put that into the traditional slasher serial killer format. I thought that was smart. And I thought the rest of the movie was going to be more like that, where you take like a more modern female fear and then you just subtly infuse it into the slasher genre. But um, instead, it ended up being definitely more heavy handed and not very subtle at all with the ideas that it was trying to put out there. Right. Some of the characters were just caricatures. They were over, overboard in, in the way that they acted about things. Everybody, the angry girl, the mousy, the quiet girl who's going to be your heroine, you know, the studious girl who we like but is going to get killed. I mean, it was, that was there. And in a campy type situation, it could have really been overplayed. And just, I know that, we had talked about not every female film needs to have a message, but it it could have had a message like, yeah, this is just a campy, over-the-top film where girls kick some ass and it's just hilarious and everybody could have accepted it instead of it being a little, I've I've heard a lot of people say it's a little preachy and I agree with that. It is a little bit preachy, even though I know it's very frustrating as a woman to live in the times that we're living in and and that we've always lived in. I agree. I could see maybe in the early stages, some of the concepts being really interesting or seeming like they had promise, but it's just really the execution and ultimately the writing that I think does the film a disservice. But We'll get into that a little bit more. I want to give some kind of synopsis of the original Black Christmas, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about some of the deviations that the remake has done. Yeah, they're not. I mean, even to call it a remake, it's its own film. Like, in my mind, it has nothing to do with the original Black Christmas other than some very generic framework. Yes. So in the original Black Christmas, I'm going to try to be brief because I feel like I always end up talking for way too long on these. But it's a 1974 Canadian horror movie written by A. Roy Moore, who is Canadian, and then directed by Bob Clark, who is American. And yes, he's the same guy who made Porky's and A Christmas Story, weirdly enough. So it's a sorority house and the setting is right before Christmas. Everyone is getting ready to go home and leave campus for Christmas break. 
there are four sorority sisters who are left and their den mother and they're all kind of winding down from a holiday party and packing up and getting ready to go. Now, the house has been receiving creepy phone calls from someone they refer to as the moaner. It's just a creepy voice on the phone that is often overtly sexual, often says garbled things, makes generic threats. So this has all been happening, and it happens again while all of the women are getting ready to leave. And of course, they end up just one by one disappearing as you realize that the person who has been making the calls is in the house. And it ends with a final girl. Uh, Her name is Jess, played by Olivia Hussey. And she ends up becoming convinced that her boyfriend, the asshole who is trying to prevent her from getting an abortion, may be the killer. And in the final act, they have a really scary confrontation and she kills him. But then at the very end of the movie, when she is sedated in bed and all the cops and paramedics have gone, we see that the killer is still at large. He is still in the house and he is still lurking around and remains a threat. So it's kind of a film about women being observed and harassed with no one to turn to for help but themselves. And I think it's really unique for those point-of-view camera shots that come from the killer's perspective and make you, the audience, feel like you are also creeping around and lurking in the shadows. It's very effective. So that's the 1974 version. I wanted to ask you real quick before we move on, do you think she killed Peter or do you think that the the guy came up and killed him in front of her? I think she killed him. I think... Um, The final shot of Jess is her clutching. What does she have? Is it like a fireplace poker? Yeah. 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 And she's like beat him. I supposedly beat him to death. Yeah. And I don't know. Do we ever. Yeah. I want to say like maybe does one of the cops mention that she is the one who killed him? I do think it's maybe mentioned. Yeah. uh, I think later on as they weirdly just have her sedated in the bed in the house. Instead of taking her yeah. to the hospital and just random men are sitting around her bed looking at her passed out. But, yeah, I think one of them did say yeah, she he came at her and she killed him. They they thought he was it. Like she had killed him. He was the one. Very strange. That whole end scene is such a I mean, you would I don't think you would ever get this in a modern movie, especially like a modern movie with the studio yeah. behind it, because they would want loose ends to be tied up. They would want a big reveal of the killer. And I right. know that W, was it WB? So Warner Brothers? I forget. Whoever, whatever studio was behind mm. the yep. release yep. in the U.S. really wanted Bob Clark to have Chris Hayden, Claire's boyfriend, the guy who's wearing that like giant fur coat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Played by Art Hindle. It was, they wanted him to be revealed as the killer, and Bob Clark was like, no, fuck that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would have been a little obvious, but I did his coat. I was like, I would definitely want his coat, but fake fur, but I, his coat. It was a whole mood that fur coat was. It was definitely, it was like something from, I think I said it's like something from the 20s. Like I expected him to pull out a big megaphone and start leading a Yale football cheer with that fur on. 
It's funny. Or like a long cigarette. Yeah. You know, like the long cigarette holder or something like, you know, like Marlena Dietrich or something. Yeah. And that's what got me at the very end scene. You know, Jess, Olivia Hussey, I love her. Oh, my God. I've loved her my whole life. She's just beautiful, beautiful woman inside and out. So she's laying in a bed. She's like catatonic from stress or overwhelmed in some type of shock coma, whatever. And then there's the guy in the fur coat, this other girl's boyfriend. There's the father of one of the girls that's missing, but we know she's dead. There's the police chief. I mean, just these random men are sitting around her bed just talking about it. And then everybody just leaves her. They leave a guy to watch over her, a policeman. And then he gets called away and she's in this house by herself. That would never happen today. I mean, that just would not be realistic. Mm -hmm. But it's so effective how the movie ends with her laying in that bed and it pans back and it shows the house and you start hearing the phone ringing again and no one's answering it. That was very chilling and just, I thought, a fantastic way to end the movie. Yeah. And I know a lot of people were annoyed or not a lot. I don't know if a lot of people, but people on the Internet were annoyed that the cops never checked the attic. But I don't know. Cops being bad at their jobs. Like, I think that's the most realistic thing ever. So I totally am willing to forego that the, the cops would be kind of incompetent in that area and that they would let the killer, the real killer, get away. And I think it's also just a great way to end the film because it gives you such a false sense of security where you're like, OK, she's killed Peter, the guy who's been harassing them. He's he's dead. This is all going to stop. And then it just starts right back up again. And then you have the added mystery of not knowing who is it? Who is it? Why is this person doing this? It's all those questions that are left open that are the most chilling and are the ones that just ruminate in your head over and over again i think that for that reason oh brilliant such a such a good movie and i'm willing to overlook like some of the little tiny plot hole things in in exchange for that unsettled feeling that we're left with that is true and we have to remember this was 1974 they may not have rushed her to the hospital at that point things were done differently back then I believe that maybe crime scenes weren't kept as strict as they are now. Protocols have changed back then. Phone calls like that, harassing phone calls, that was a normal thing. That was a chilling thing. You couldn't pick up the phone and trace anybody. They could just do it and hang up on you and you had no idea who it was. That's just the way that it was back then. So there's a lot of things I think that Maybe some younger people who would not remember those times would be like, this is implausible, but it really isn't as implausible as you think it would be. And the parts of the movie where the girls tried to go and talk to the cops and be taken seriously, well, we know that still goes on. Yeah. So that's very plausible that she's just hysterical. Oh, she's out. She's doing, you know, why are you doing this? That, that still happens today especially if you're a person of color or a woman, I think that you're you're given a backseat on, oh, it's not that bad, or you're, you're overthinking it, or she's here, she's there. So I, I think that it did 
it was maybe a little bit more true to form. There was some some glitches, but a little more true to form for the times, for 1974, definitely. Yeah, things were a lot more lax. Yes. And I like the fact of her being in that house, supposedly all alone at the moment, and the two dead women were still up in the attic, which yeah. that was really chilling. The girl sitting in a rocking chair, plastic all around her, holding a baby doll, rocking, being rocked. Also, the house lady, the whatever they get, the den, den mother, being up there. Well, I hate to to release anything that we shouldn't release before we talked about it, but she was basically had a hook in her back is how she died and was jerked up into the attic and she's still hanging there. That's just something very chilling about the dead bodies still being there as if they're overlooking her or I don't know. And of course the killer still being in the house. So yeah, very creepy, effective way to end a horror movie. And I think, yeah, for sure. An ending that I just can't really think of a parallel in modern horror. Not that I'm so well-versed in it, but there's nothing that comes to mind that I would say gives that similar feeling of just total unease and dissatisfaction at having not identified the responsible person. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think. It it does seem like as films went on, we had to we had to have the twist, but we had to wrap it all up. It could be a plot twist. And there have been some good plot twists where you didn't see it coming this way, but it always seems like there was always an explanation. Yeah. That someone just just didn't get away and we just didn't know what was going to happen. We need more of that. I think so too. But, you know, studios are so hell-bent on everything being dumbed down for the viewer that will it ever happen? Who knows? Yeah. And definitely in the 2019 remake, it is a lot more straightforward, even though there is a supernatural twist. So just to give some idea of how it differs, it's the same general plot where it's sororities, sisters, they are preparing to go home for the holiday break, blah, blah, blah. That is all pretty similar. The protagonist, named Riley, played by Imogen Poots, is a character who's an orphan. She was, before the film started, raped by a frat guy named Brian, and she's clearly dealing with some trauma over the rape and also some rage over being dismissed and not believed by men. In this film, the women are being hunted by multiple men in hooded robes. There's this supernatural twist where the men hunting them are possessed by Calvin Hawthorne, who was the founder of their college and clearly just some like old white misogynist. And then instead of phone calls to the sorority house, it's text messages, of course. And instead of just there being one final girl, there were two final girls, Riley and Chris, played by Elise Shannon, who is sort of the politically active member of the sorority who is the woman who's always reminding people that they should not think about themselves individually, but think about the greater good and is a very problematic character, but we will talk about that more later. (laughs) The dialogue is very like, 
how adults think Gen Z talks. Mm -hmm. It's it's very like, let's get in Diva Cup. Let's get in, I don't know, Smash the Patriarchy. Let's get in. It just, yeah, it felt very much to me like older people trying to talk like younger people, which is not in, in no way unique to this film. I think we see it a lot with Gen Z, especially adults trying to imitate it. So it definitely doesn't feel as organic, the dialogue, as it does in the original Black Christmas, where I felt like the relationships between the women were all very organic. You understood why they were friends with each other. You understood that even when they disagreed, they had respect for each other. And they just, yeah, it just seemed like this is how people talk to each other. That's so true. It felt like the women in the original film were truly people that I have known or associated with, I, that they seemed real, where the women in the remake were definitely more caricatures, like it was just some type of figure popping up, almost like the thing that pops up on your computer and says, here, I'm here to give you a message or whatever. That's what they were there for. Each one of them was just two-dimensional. That was it. They were there to portray a certain trope, you know, the angry girl, the studious girl, the innocent girl. They were not very deeply written characters, I thought. No, and I mean, actually watching it made me feel like I had face blindness because I was like, wait a second, who, which, which one is this? (laughs) Like, I was definitely having a hard time keeping track of them because aside from Riley and Chris and then Lindsay, who is the first girl who dies everyone else just kind of blended into each other like i couldn't i I had to remind myself like okay who is helena who is uh what was the girl who marty get marty Yeah. yeah like none of them felt distinct to me and even in our notes to prepare for this episode i was like i don't even know how to describe a lot of these characters because they're there and they get dialogue, but you don't really have, I mean, I guess Marty is the one with the boyfriend, you know? Yeah. That's as deep as I can go. Schmoosh or whatever his name was. Yeah. (laughs) Bullshit. Yeah. Some, some fratty nickname. Yeah. Schmoosh. Yeah. I mean, I, I, like I said, I always try to try to look for the good and I know what they were trying to do here because Campus rape is definitely a thing, and it's hard to, in a campy way, I don't know, I mean, you have to just walk, it really takes a talent to walk a line of getting a message out in a fun way or getting a message out in a serious way, and I just think that this film went so many different ways. It just became a little bit muddled on what was trying to be said and what was trying to happen with it. It begs questioning, and we've talked about this already like why remake this movie why remake the original and they remade it in 2006 and then they remade it again in 2019 and I understand remakes to an extent and I know obviously the studios are all obsessed with IP Mm -hmm. that's a whole fucking thing where you know it's already a proven concept and audiences have already given it the stamp of approval or interest so they're more willing to green light it So I understand that, but I just think that if you're going to remake something, either remake it or put a new twist on it entirely and don't brand it as a remake. 
I think the all of the different pieces when you do a remake are so crucial to the film's success. Like, it's not just is it a good film or not. It's like, is it a good film compared to the original? How is it marketed? Is it marketed like it's going to be a remake of the original? Is it marketed like a spiritual successor? Like, all those little pieces are so crucial to how an audience approaches it when they go into it. And to me, it's like, okay, I guess if all we care about is getting asses in seats mm-hmm. to see this movie and you don't care if it's critically panned, then I guess, okay, sure. But the end product is nothing that has longevity. I just think remakes are really tricky, especially it seems like the things that people want to see remade are instant classics. and. Well, I wouldn't even say instant classics. It's more or less like, you know, every once in a while you just, you see something and it's magical to you and it sticks with you. And that seems to be the films that they want to remake. And it's hard to capture that feeling again. So if you're going to remake something, maybe remake a shitty movie and make it a lot better and say, oh my God, this is a remake of so-and-so and it's so much better. I don't know why they're trying to remake something that is so good. How can you recapture that? It almost seems redundant to say remake. Like you said, do something completely different with it. Take it in in a whole new direction. Because a remake, nine times out of ten, is just going to be horrible and flop. Because there's just sometimes magic is instant. And it's almost like that first kiss. You can't go back and have that first kiss. Again, you just can't. It's it's already happened. Yeah. So you have to do something different or go down a different avenue. Totally. And I think like we I was so we had talked about potentially doing some other remakes on the podcast because I do think it's interesting to compare them and to think about like what makes a good remake or what films are rife for mm-hmm. a remake. Because the films that came to my mind immediately when I was thinking about this remake were Candyman, which we had said, well, maybe we'll talk about that one because it's another one where the original is beloved and the remake is made by a woman. And I think the reason why that film was not liked is because the marketing was so shitty. The marketing made you think it was going to be a remake, but it really was, I would say, a spiritual successor. So if you went into it and you hadn't recently seen the original, you could be very easily confused. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, Candyman is a good example of that. And then I think uh, an example of a good remake that I liked is Funny Games. And that one is really interesting because it's written and directed by the same person, Mikhail Hanukkah. And it's shot for shot. It's cast with different people. There are some differences, I think, in the music. But it's a shot for shot remake. And so I think it's interesting to think about why does that work and what is the remake giving us? And it's also interesting to think about would a woman ever get the opportunity to remake one of her movies for a different audience, but the exact same fucking movie? Yeah. Yeah. So... I know this is a tangent, no. but just interesting to think about. No, I, th- I think it's worth looking at, like, what formula works. Maybe a shot for shot is a brilliant thing because most people don't do that on a remake. They don't do for- shot for shot with different people. So that was something different. That was something that 
hit a chord that you don't see a lot of. Uh, so thinking about that, the Psycho remake by Gus Van Sant was shot for shot. Mm -hmm. And that one, again, that one didn't do well. That one was missing something. Right. So again, it's like, okay, so, but what is it? Like just trying to figure out the magic formula of what makes this movie work and what makes this movie bad or not as beloved or not as well received. Yeah, you know, it could be a lot of things. I mean, it could just be, it could be luck just getting the right people in. It could be hitting people at the right time in society. It could, I mean, there's just, it, it could just be talent of a writer or director. I mean, God, there's probably just, it could be the film they're choosing. There's so many variables out there. Totally. I don't know. Maybe it's always going to be a hit and miss. Maybe there's just no true formula. It's like just good fucking luck with what you're going to do. Yeah, no. <laughs> we hope you're successful. I, I think that's right. But I think that's why it makes it interesting right. to discuss, just to try to suss out all the different threads of like, okay, yeah. what was going on that made people grasp onto this? But I think coming back to Black Christmas, one thing that made the originals so get under your skin and really create a sense of chill were those point of view shots from the killer's perspective and those unusual angles and just all of the choices that the director and the cinematographer Reginald Morris, the decisions that he made, made the film really interesting visually. The experience of watching it was really interesting. And with Black Christmas, there were definitely some mm. scenes where you could tell that they were doing an homage to the shooting style of Black Christmas, the original, but it didn't carry through the whole film. There would be like one scene, like there was the scene after Fran gets killed and you see her out on the balcony and she's kind of, there's like a looking over shot that is sort of like those right. shots of Claire all wrapped in plastic in the attic looking out on the street. And there was the whole plastic wrap death scene, you know, so there were some homages to the original, but as a whole, it was not, it wasn't adding anything of its own from a mm -hmm. visual pizzazz cinematography standpoint, I don't think. I don't think so. Like I said, I thought some of the best cinematography that I saw in the remake was the opening when they pulled her body and she was doing the snow angels. That was kind of cool. And then there was a cool shot where I think Riley was walking from her dorm room into the campus and it kind of captured that wintry, dreary feeling, um, kind of foreboding feeling that I kind of felt in Black Christmas because I, I, I made some notes while I was watching it and I just remember saying, oh, I like this shot. But then it just kind of devolved after that. Yeah, I agree. And let's let's talk a little bit about, so one of the Deviations in the 2019 version, we talked about how Riley has this rape subplot. And within the film, there is a scene where the girls who are in the same sorority house, they've prepared this dance and song that they're going to perform at a fraternity's, like, I don't know, what is it? Some kind of celebration competition of some sort yeah i did go to college but i was never in any of that so i don't even know <laughs> i don't know anything about fraternity or sorority yeah. culture i'm sorry i don't same i'm a little ignorant to it all yeah. but it's some kind of like battle and yeah. they're gonna perform this song and 
Riley does not want to be a part of it because what the song is doing is calling out her rapist Mm -hmm. and rape culture in the college and in the fraternity. So it's very much like a confrontation. And the girl who is supposed to be in this dance ends up getting sick and having to go home and Riley has to take her place. And the girls are pressuring her to take the place and to stand up to her accuser. And I think the film wants us to see this as a powerful thing, like her doing this thing and her being able to say fuck you to the guy who raped her. But it's actually really traumatic. And it makes me really dislike that character, Chris, because she's the one pushing Riley to not think about herself, to think about the cause at large and to just re-traumatize herself through this performance. But it's played as like a yas girl kind of moment. (laughs) And it's just to me, I was at that moment, I was like, okay, hmm, someone should have this is someone should have caught this in the writing. Someone should have red flagged this and said, let's think a little bit closer. Let's let's closer examine these dynamics and think about if this makes sense. Yeah. And it did end up blowing up a little later because I think she said something off camera and it got put on YouTube or or something. And every it, it, it drawed a lot of attention to her and she freaked out. So yeah, it was kind of when I first saw the the dance thing, like I said, this is my first viewing of it. And I, I thought it was not thinking about how she was pressured into it, but just the words of the song. I just thought that it was kind of hilarious that at first all it seemed like it was going to be this little ooh, boop 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 and then they started accusing him and it was like oh but yeah I mean absolutely you cannot push your beliefs on someone that's been traumatized like that we all deal with stuff differently and to to force her to say you know the only way that you're going to overcome this is to confront him and do that no maybe some people do it by staying away from that person and putting it in the rearview mirror, and that's the way that they have to handle it. So, yeah, I mean, once again, I just think it was trying to prove a point in a way that was more of something that's not realistic in human life, more of just a trope of one of these things where, yeah, you just have to stand up for yourself and you'll be fine, just like you've got to work hard and you'll make it. You know, it was just one of those things where they just took a very complicated situation and just try to put some type of cliche on it. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, I do appreciate that it comes back up. And I think if I remember correctly, it was that Riley had said her her rapist's name and that had made it into the YouTube video. And so then it was, you know, it could potentially become a legal issue because she's directly accusing somebody of rape by name publicly. Right. But right. I thought that that was maybe going to go somewhere. I was like, okay, maybe they're they're turning this around. Maybe they're going to go deeper into it. And Riley and Chris are going to have some kind of discussion or understanding of missteps in the situation. But I don't think it ever panned out into anything. It just escalated the violence, I think, that was going on with the fraternity invading the sorority and trying to kill the members. But it didn't serve a greater purpose. Like, there was no dissection of it within the dialogue in the film. Right. I think at that point we started careening more towards the paranormal, which was, I understand, I I read an interview of what they were trying to achieve 
with with the paranormal. It was something to the effect of the patriarchy is just so omnipresent and so involved in our lives that for a woman it can feel like it's it's a force that we can't harness, almost like it is a supernatural force that's just taken over and there's no way to protect ourselves and we're out of control. So I understand that. But once again, that's a whole nother way to go in a movie that it didn't work. It, it just didn't fit into this whole re- this whole movie for me. That part, I was like, eh, that's where it kind of went cattywampus for me, even from the beginning. I, I wish they had not brought in the paranormal at all. Yeah, I didn't love it. I thought that maybe it could have, like I said, I think if this movie was campier, yes. maybe it could have worked. Yes, the camp, it would have been beautiful. Yeah, but because they played it so seriously, it was just kind of stupid to me. Yeah. And it wasn't even scary. I mean, the statue with the black no. goo coming down his face, that's scary. I, fuck, just give me a shovel. I'd knock that shit right out of there. But I mean, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, I liked them lighting everything on fire. Okay, that's cathartic. Like, I, I, I appreciate right. the idea of, okay, let's give these women who have been through so much some catharsis. I like that element right. to it. But it's just like the villain has to be scarier or more amplified for that to feel as good as it should. Right. And I don't know if you remember that scene when everything's on fire and the camera pans into this up close shot of Riley, who's looking at the burning frat house. And you would think that she would be triumphant or like, yes, but. I remember I made a note of she really looked apprehensive, like she was still very upset. So I'm wondering, is she upset that they've just killed a lot of people yeah. and put them on fire? Or is she upset thinking this paranormal force is everywhere? We haven't eliminated it. Or I, I don't know. I, I, but I think that she they definitely made her say like look apprehensive in the shot yeah. and i i just wanted to think what did you think was going through her mind yeah i don't know i think probably some combination of like well we did it but fuck we haven't done it like we haven't done anything like yeah. it, this is just going to yeah. keep happening over and over again probably something like that yeah i think you're right and i mean i guess that is better than her being triumphant potentially i mean it's more maybe more interesting or more emotionally complex but i just don't know you know i don't feel like the film really does a good enough job of helping you to understand any of the characters even riley who is the protagonist for that to have Mm -hmm. Like an emotional payoff. That's a good assessment of that. Yeah. I mean, I did like in the credits where you see Claudette, the cat, licking goo from a corpse at the house. That was my favorite part, if I'm being honest. That and the opening. Yeah, I like that. I I was looking at my notes back on that, and I I remember thinking, like, I hope Claudette's okay. (laughs) You know, like, I wasn't worried about the cat and the whole thing. I was like, do not kill this cat. Yeah. 
Well, because is Claude in the original? I forget. Do you get any closure no. on him? Okay, I didn't think so. No, and I put that in my notes. Like, is Claude okay? Like, yeah. what happened to him? Thank God they didn't show him, like, strung up, but he, he just disappears out of the whole thing. So They should have, in the final shot that played with uh, credits rolling over it, you should have seen Claude, like, come out of the house. Yeah. Come on, Bob Clark. Give us give us some closure on Claude, at least. Yeah. I think at one point they did like an up close of the killer's eye in the original Black Christmas. Or they could have showed yeah. his shadow in a closet and like Claude walking past the closet. I don't know. Just something to say, okay, he's still here. It's cool. There was something in kind of interesting that the 2019 remake did which was the professor who is the one who ends up running this whole supernatural dark magic let's bring back the power of calvin hawthorne and harness it to suppress women or whatever the fuck um played by carrie elwes is that how you say his name i think yeah from princess bride yeah, the great Cariolas, who is yeah. one of the best parts of this movie, I will say. Yeah. Um, he was he was the one who was really like uh, kind of over the top sinister. He got it. Yeah. <laughs> he got but, not what it should be. <laughs> yes. But in his class, he brought up the writing of Camille Paglia. Remember, there's that scene where they're oh, in the yeah. classroom and he reads a passage. I forget what passage he reads. And also, I don't like I don't know Camille Paglia because she's I have no reason to ever engage with her unless I'm, you know, doing an academic exercise or something. (laughs) But he reads her work and Riley assumes it's written by a man. And if you read her any of her work, you would assume it's written by a man because it's very anti-feminist, even though she claims to be a feminist. And I thought the film was maybe going to go deeper with that where that kind of became a framework for some of the relationships within the the film, like the female relationships within the film. And you did kind of get it in that one character. I think it was Helena who got captured and then ended up turning and tricking the girls and they killed her anyway. Right. I thought that that was going to be more of the twist element to the movie. Like it was going to be more about internalized misogyny and how that can be weaponized against women. But it ended up only being a tiny little fragment of the movie. And I thought that would have been interesting if those ideas were pulled out a bit more and if that was used to maybe structure some of the relationships. But then, not to get too long-winded, but I think one of the reasons why the original is so great is because all of the women really do love and support each other. And there is, even though there are some tensions, like between Barb, played by Margot Kidder, who is incredible. Oh, loved her. And Claire, even though there are some tensions, you understand more where those are coming from. Like, they're not reductive. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, maybe that's a useful thing to talk about because Barb and Claire get into it a little bit like barb is kind of bullying toward her and i think accusing her of being a virgin and just kind of mean and taunting and barb is also just sort of a brash character who's just saying shit that is incendiary for the sake of it but i think there's enough shading that you understand that it's 
like a, a lashing out because she has other problems. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you get that. Oh my God. What was it? Hold on. I write this down. I have to read it. Barb. I loved Barb. And I, and I understand exactly what you're saying. Her character was so good, but in, in the original movie, at one point she's on the phone with her mother and she says, you know what? You're a real gold-plated whore mother. Do you know that? Yeah. I mean, she just had said, and that right there, just that conversation she had with her mom, you know she's got some trauma <laughs> that she's bringing forward. Yeah. <gasps> yeah, like there's, it's not a ton, but there's enough where you understand the, her motivations. And you empathize right. because y- you get a little bit of backstory that kind of tells you why she is the way she is. Right. And I expected that to be something that we saw with the Helena character, who mm-hmm. I think is supposed to be like Camilla, Camille Paglia. I think that's like she's sort of the stand-in within the story. Yeah. So I expected us to get a little more to understand why she would do that. But we didn't. It was just very, like, very reductive, two-dimensional, like, this is an idea. Go with it. hmm Yeah, that, I think that would have been very interesting, that, that mindset of someone becoming, it's almost like when a hostage becomes enamored of their kidnappers, you know, like mm-hmm. something just kind of goes wrong there. And that would have been a really good venue to explore. Yeah, they just, it, it, they could have gone to, you know that would have been one way of doing it really make your characters deep go off on that type of thing take that writing show how the characters go out that that would have been another way of making this more of a sensitive movie if you were going to do the 2000 remake as a sensitive instead of a campy i think that that would have really worked well yeah i think that that is a really good idea like they could have so if you're thinking about okay what's a beloved element from the original it's the friendship between the women and how real the characters feel all right so amplify that and show us what that looks like in 2022 because i don't think it looks like this where you know a girl comes into the room of another and puts her diva cup or tampon in in front of her like that's just very I guess it's supposed to signify closeness, but it's just very reductive. And they really could have made something great by just deepening those relationships and maybe having the action of the film play out in the same way, but having the relationships more at the forefront. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved how the original film did develop the characters. Barb, I just have to say again, she was such a good character. She wasn't the main character, but she had so much depth. There was one funny scene where they were having some type of Santa party at the sorority house or somewhere, and Barb was there, and all these kids were running around, and she was drinking whiskey, and this little kid comes up to her, and she literally takes the glass and is like, drink, like putting whiskey in his mouth. I don't know if you remember that scene. And then she's like, I think he's drunk, you know, and this little kid. I mean, it was just a hilarious scene and the Santa's cussing. And it just felt so real. It just felt like something that some brash sorority girl would do. And then there was another scene where she definitely had too much to drink. And she's sitting there and she, the father of one of the girls that's missing, she start saying all kind of stuff to him and she's very rude and her friend who's played by Andrea who is the girl oh I love her she used to be on SCTV 
Is it Andrea Martin? Yeah, Andrea Martin. Her the Andrea Martin character looks at the Margot Kidder character and says, You need you know, she's usually a quiet, mousy girl, never says anything. She's like, You need to go to bed. And at that point, that was just another way of showing how Barb was so fragile. Yeah. Uh, there was just little nuances like that in that film that you did not have in in the remake at all. Two lingering things that I wanted to ask you about were what you made of the Agnes and Billy names that come out of the creepy phone calls in the original. So the guy making the phone calls is referring to himself as Billy, and then he often references someone named Agnes. Do you have any theories on that? It's definitely ambiguous in the film. Definitely is. I do have some theories because I felt like what we're talking about is the the serial killer when he he calls in and says certain things, and then there's certain parts of the film where you go and you just hear him kind of talking to himself, and he's playing character. And this and this really put me back to Psycho, where Norman Plate was talking to his mother, but he was really himself, like he was playing that out. So I really yeah. got a big Psycho vibe from that. And I think what I think was trying to happen there there is I believe that the director was trying to hash out for us where the serial killer was coming from without revealing too much, but he was trying to give us a little bit of a backstory with him. And I took it as Billy was probably some uh, very mentally disturbed boy that did something horrible to a baby. Maybe he killed the baby or raped a baby. I don't know. And it it, it seemed like, because there was one conversation and I went back and I remember replaying this where it was like, Billy, what did you do with Agnes? Where's the baby? What did you do? And I think that's, you see when the girl gets wrapped up in the plastic and dies, there's a baby being held with her. Like he was trying to atone for something he had done horribly wrong in his past and had been punished for it. So that I just felt like that they were trying to maybe give us some backstory on that of why he was doing the things that he was doing and why he was targeting women. And there were certain times he was like, help me, help me stop. Like there was a part of him that wanted to stop, maybe trying to give us some type of empathy for him. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that exactly what you said. I think it was just meant to give some hint of a backstory without revealing too much and making it blatant. Right. And I thought it was smart for that reason, because it's giving you a little bit that you can hook into and start theorizing on. But the film isn't feeding you anything. The film isn't saying this is what it is. Or here's a flashback scene where we right. see the, you know, the killer's childhood and whatever. None of that. But there was enough to give you something. And I thought that was, again, just a a subtle bit of filmmaking from Bob Clark and Roy Moore. And yeah, just a great example of how the film as a whole is just very, very understated in a lot of really good ways. Yeah, he did do that. He tried to give everyone a backstory, even the house mother or whatever, the den mother, whatever they had back then that they apparently no longer have at all, I don't think, in sororities. But I don't know if you noticed, but I think I read this somewhere that there, and I I had seen this in the movie, there was an album, an old record that was on her bedstand next to her bed. And it was some type of reference to her character, because apparently her character used to be some type of sister act 
with a, a Broadway and it was somehow mentioned and it showed on her nightstand a record, an old record that was supposedly her and her sister that she still had. It was just a flash, but that was in there and that record caught my attention. So I stopped it, tried to figure it out. And then I looked it up online and they said, yeah, it was just a little made up record for that character that they put on her nightstand to try to give some type of backstory to even the dim mother who was hilarious and, yeah. and catty and, to me, had the best death. I liked her death <laughs> out of all of them. I thought yeah, that I was the too. most crazy. So, yeah, I think that he, he tried to give a little bit of a backstory, just as brief as it was to everyone. Yeah, really, really smart. I think the other thing I wanted to get your take on is the girl who is, I believe, a high school, a local high school girl named Janice who goes missing the same night that mm -hmm. all of the girls in the sorority house are being attacked, like the same night that Claire has also attacked. And then right. I believe the next day, Mrs. Mack is attacked. So it's, what does, what do you think the, what do you think the, the point of that is? Why put it in there? What does it add? Yeah, I had to think about that. The only, and once again, brilliantly, we never, he never really ties if it was Billy, this Billy that was doing all the killing, he never specifically ties Billy into that. But if I was taking the stance that, yes, Billy killed her and then maybe took refuge in this house to try to go and sort it out, because I think he was a type of killer that maybe did, it gave the impression he didn't want to kill, but he was killing. The only thing that I could think of is maybe it was some type of metaphorical way of saying the killer just isn't contained in the sorority house. This killer can be anywhere. This is a force that he can go out at any point. No one is safe. These girls in this house aren't safe. You're not safe anywhere. To try to add more of a like, oh my gosh, you know, like, this just isn't happening in the sorority house. This could be happening anywhere. This could happen to me. Maybe to put that in somebody's head. That's the only thing I could come up with. Yeah, I think it's like, okay, you could escape the house, but you can't escape the evil within it. That type of deal. Yeah. But. Yeah. I mean, even if it wasn't Billy, there's going to be somebody out there waiting to kill you no matter what. Kind of like where. The, what the supernatural was trying to say, but this was said in a little bit more realistic way of the killer just, yeah, it's terrible that the killer's in the house, but it doesn't even matter because it's, he's everywhere. Yeah. Which is, which is good. And it's more subtly done, even though there are definitely similar ideas in the original and the remake, it's definitely more subtly done in the original. This idea that the killer is, you don't know who it is because it's anyone and everyone. And in the remake, it's the same kind of deal where it's it's many people and they're all being influenced by this supernatural force of misogyny. But it's, you see multiple people, you see multiple killers, you see all these men together. You, you know, there are scenes that reveal and reveal and it's all pretty cut and dry, even though it is supernatural. So, right. yeah, just another, I guess, just another difference between the two. Yeah, it is. And I, I mean, I would love to hear what everyone else thinks that have seen both movies. 
Do you love one, hate one? Do you kind of like them both? What is your take on it? Because I, I guess I go away from this saying, the one from 1974, of course, is a wonderful film. It's something that I would definitely go back and watch again and will do so and may even end up in my Christmas rotation. The 2019, it, it may be a while, maybe maybe a couple of years from now, maybe I will try to go back and look at that, but definitely a little bit less memorable, but I don't think that it's a complete write-off. See it. Yeah, I think, if anything, it's interesting to see and then parse and think about the ways in which overtly feminist filmmaking, I'm putting that in quotes, can go wrong and become really reductive and become mm -hmm. really just kind right. of a marketing tool and not anything more meaningful that goes deeper than surface level. And I think that even if you are like, this movie is a piece of shit and I don't want to watch it, I think you should still watch it just because these are things that we should all be thinking about. Anyone who's interested in making movies or writing about movies or just thinking deeper about movies, I think it's important to engage with all kinds of works, even ones that may not personally grip you in a way that is, you know, you're going to rewatch it yearly. I read a review by someone, and I, I think that they made a good point of the 2019 one. They said, the 2019 film is going to appeal to the people that don't need to hear the message. They're already there because it is so blatantly kind of preachy that, yeah, you, the people that are like hearing that, they, they already have it. They already understand it. But if, it, if the film was trying to reach a wider audience and deliver some type of message, which apparently they felt like, like you said, Lindsay, they don't need to, but apparently they felt like they needed to, that message is going to fall on deaf ears because it did not, it, people are just going to dismiss it because it's so over the top on the way it does it. Yeah. Exactly. If you're in the mood for some rah-rah feminism, then you, maybe you'll watch this. But nobody who is not on that wavelength and looking for that specific thing is going to find interest in this. Right. And I think we didn't go into this, but like the PG-13 rating doesn't help either because horror fans who would maybe gravitate toward it not knowing the messaging are going to be put off by that. So there are just all kinds of things that are messed up about this movie from the you know writing and the directing to the um, execution and the marketing and the publicity, blah, blah, blah. We could go on. But I hope that you will still watch it. Yeah. Definitely watch the original Black Christmas. Yes. Check them out. Let us know what you think. And happy holidays. Hope everyone has a stress-free holiday. We're supposed to get snow and bad weather here, so everyone stay safe and, and enjoy. <laughs>